You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Okay, well... um, First of all, thanks for the practice. This was really nice. Uh, Super nice to be back in this space. Um, So the thing that I wanted to kind of begin this discussion about today is the idea that practice does not need to feel good, you know? And so this is something that I think is very, very important that we think about. Practice does not need to feel good in order for it to be effective. And if you go into the practice space looking for a good feeling or looking for pleasure, then we will often leave feeling, you know, feeling a little down. We'll be feeling like, oh, actually, it didn't feel so good today. I didn't do so good. I had to do like this. I had to do like that. And so the first thing to remember is that practice does not need to feel good. And that's really important. And the second half of that is you don't need to do the asanas good either in order for yoga to work. And so this is also important. You don't need to be good at yoga in order for yoga to work if that makes sense. And what what I mean by yoga, when I say that is you don't need to be good at asana in order for yoga to work. Because what can often happen is we end up feeling deflated because of two reasons in the yoga practice. One, it felt bad today. You know, it felt bad. I had to do like this and I wanted to do like that. And I wanted to jump back and I could not jump back. And I used to jump back and now it did not happen. And I have a shoulder injury and I do not have a shoulder. I don't want to have a shoulder injury. My wrist hurt today and it doesn't normally hurt. And all these things come up and we start to feel dejected. You know, we feel down. We feel, you know, and then we end up thinking that this isn't the practice anymore. So it's this kind of unfair comparison of what once was versus what is. And It's either that or it's the expectation that a lot of people come in because of the advertising of yoga, which shows a very nice image, which looks like it feels really good. You know what I mean? So I feel like maybe, you know, and we're training ourselves to remain equanimous when we, when we practice. So when things don't feel good, we're training ourselves as yoga practitioners to remain calm and balanced. So the idea is that your facial expression shouldn't really show what's going on internally, but sometimes I feel like maybe for the sake of um, commiseration, we might want to share that sometimes. You know what I mean? So we train ourselves to, when there's pain, to be very stoic and equanimous and like lean into it a little bit and accept it and make peace with it. And then if someone were to snap a picture of us in that moment, there would be this aura of just like peacefulness, Right but they don't see inside that you're actually at peace with pain, right? So that's interesting. So you see from the outside, and then you get this mistaken feeling that yoga should feel good, that your practice should always feel good. You should always have that smile of serenity because it feels that serene inside. And that's not true. We want to have equanimity and serenity, but it's equanimity and serenity in the face of sometimes pain, sometimes pleasure, right? So that's the first thing. And that's important because I feel like I see some of, you know, especially uh, we've been practicing and I see that sometimes a practice going well and sometimes a practice very difficult. And then there can be a strong reaction on the days of difficulty, you know? And then suddenly what once felt good doesn't feel good anymore. And then there's a strong attachment to what once was. So if we put in our minds right away that the purpose of the practice, the asanas are not to feel good, then we can take a big burden off of our shoulders. Make sense? Mm Mm-hmm. 
So the next time your practice feels bad, try to avoid going into a tailspin of, oh, this is terrible. This is terrible. This is terrible. Poor me. Oh, why me? What did I do? It was bad karma. I was mean to people in the last life. You know, I'm paying the crime right now. Um, some people have said that to me. Do you think I'm stiff because I was nasty in a previous life? I'm like, I don't know. I really don't. I don't know. I'm not, I don't, I don't sit with the scales of karma over here. I can't like go and check in my karma book and be like, I don't know. Let me check. You know? Yeah. Last life you were a total jerk. So that's why you're stiff. No, I, it, I, I don't know. You know, who knows? I don't think it necessarily works like that. Um, I think maybe, maybe, maybe there's some other exchange, right? So the other thing, the other half of that is that if you're newer to the practice, right? If you're newer to the practice, you're coming into the practice, you can expect on the horizon of your yoga practice for things to be difficult for a good long while, right? You cannot expect that those asanas, the first time you try, that you'll do them. And this can be frustrating because you're there in a class and say you're newer, right? So let's say you're newer and you see everybody else doing the poses. And it looks like they've been doing that since birth, just like that, because you don't see them 10 years before, suffering, failing, all this sort of stuff. You just see the end result. Oh, look at her. Beautiful jump back. Look at me. More me. Look at this. So heavy. You know, why can't I do this? I'm old and injured now. Poor me. Right. So it's important if you're newer to the practice to not judge yourself against people that have been practicing for a long time or what anybody else can do. Because uh, there are so many students that get frustrated, particularly with Ashtanga yoga, because they say it's too hard. You know, it's too hard. I can't do the poses. Okay, who said you're supposed to be able to do the poses? No one said that. You're supposed to come in and fail at everything, right? So it's like life. Imagine if you only did the things you were good at, right? Think about that. What, what would that amount to? What are you naturally good at? What do you think? Anybody give me some examples? What are you? Eating. Eating, we would eat a lot. I'm good at eating. I can eat. I do that very well. I could just eat all day. I could ever deliver me, you know, as many of you have been uh, taking Tim's classes, you know what Tim would order. What would Tim order? Donuts. Donuts. My husband's obsessed with donuts. Um, it's a, now we have this location, which is very close to um, a donut place called the Salty Donut. I don't know if that was some kind of, you know, strange law of attraction thing. He talks about donuts, 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 donuts for three years. Then we have a new location, like one block away from Miami's best donut shop. If you haven't tried, you should all go try the salty donut. It sounds weird though, salty donut. You're like, I don't want a salty donut. Can I not have salty donut? Can I have a sweet donut? But it's like, a, they, they do a lot of things with like caramel and the little salt on the caramel is nice. So I won't make you all too, too hungry anyway, especially if we're not here in Miami. You're like, oh, do they ship the salty donuts to other places, right? So they're very, very good donuts. Even they have every day, at least one vegan flavor. So I, I will say that the other flavors look more exciting, um, but I haven't tried them. Um, so, so if you're new to the practice, here we are. What are we good at? We're good at eating, sleeping, you know, watching Netflix. This is like things we're naturally good at. I can lie there. I can watch Netflix and I can eat donuts and potato chips. This is things I'm naturally good at. What's difficult? I got to get out of bed. I got to do yoga. I got to, you know try to be a nice person. I got to try to think good thoughts about other people. This is hard work. Oh my goodness. It's not even a job. No, I have to have a job. I don't like that either. Yucky. I have to pay taxes. Oh, nobody likes that. You know, we just cancel all of this, but then the whole, you know, world collapses into anarchy. So that's also bad, you know? So, so if we think about that, we can't just do what we're good at. And this is the same thing with yoga. 
Ashtanga yoga is the most confrontational form of yoga that I've ever, that I know of, because it asks you not to skip over things that you're difficult at, that are difficult for you. And it doesn't allow you to just do what you're good at. So for example, um, if you, uh, if you sort of don't follow a set sequence that asks you to go through this pose and then that pose and then that pose and that pose, what will naturally happen is we'll do the donuts Netflix sleeping version of yoga, which is what are all the asanas that are easy for me? So you're good at backbends. So what does your practice look like? Lots of backbends. You're good at arm balances. What's your practice look like? Lots of arm balances. But Ashtanga doesn't let you get away with that. Ashtanga is like, great. Start off with sun salutations, do standing poses. Everybody does the same thing. People who are naturally good at backbends come into Ashtanga and they're like, where are the backbends? When do I get to do those things? I have to wait until I put my legs behind my head and I do all those twisting things, all those forward folds. That is not fair. Um, you know, in these other styles of yoga, we do backbend first. And we're like, yeah, no, I'm sorry that you're good at that. You have to wait, you know? And all the people that want to do handstands and cool looking arm balances, they have to wait for two whole series, right? Two whole series. And by the time you get there in Ashtanga, you're like, you know what? I don't really need these. These looked cool from the other side, but now please take them away. Um, I just take primary series and standing poses is good for me, you know? So if you're new to the practice, you want to understand the logic and the methodology of Ashtanga. Recently, I was I taught a, like a, a, a class with a lot of new people to Ashtanga yoga. And one student came up to me and said, I don't feel that my, I, the, the way that the standing poses, I feel I'm not ready to do the standing poses because my triangle pose doesn't feel like I'm open enough to do triangle. And I'm like, I'm not sure what, what you're looking for in triangle pose. But um, it's a, it's, you really don't need to be that open for the triangle pose. In the methodology of Ashtanga, we're using, we're, we have a very, like the way that the primary series is built is to have sun salutations for, that achieve two purposes, well, many purposes, but let's, let's talk about three main purposes for today. First, we have the sun salutations, which are there to generate that internal heat, the spark of Agni, the fire, which burns from the inside out, which is cool, rather than external heat. Here in Miami, we have enough of external heat, so we don't need more external heat. But that being said, if you live in the cold climate where, especially in the winter, you need to heat the room, don't think I'm just going to, you know, like melt the snow with my mula bandha. Um, you know, maybe the Tibetans and Wim Hof can do that. But, you know, we try, we need to put our leg behind our head. We need a little small heat. So we want to we wanna have a, like a, a comfortable room and then the sun salutation light the spark of internal heat, the Agni, the fire. Now, the fire is an important symbol in yoga because once the fire is lit, it burns through impurities and then eventually turns and transforms into what's called the jnana diptir or the lamp of knowledge. And the lamp of knowledge brings spiritual illumination. So this is the sun salutations, light that spark. The second thing the sun salutations contain is a microcosm of every single asana in the whole practice. So you can find the foundation of all the other asanas and movements just in the sun salutations. To the extent that my teacher, Patabi Joyce, he said the sun salutations complete practice. So if you don't have time, he said, just take sun salutations and lie down. No problem. Great. So that also takes the stress off of Ashtanga because if so many people say, I don't have time, I can't take full primary series. No, you have five minutes, you can do sun salutations, lie down. No problem. Hmm. So the third thing that the sun salutations do, which is very, very, which, which I think is also quite interesting, is that they're said to create a, a strength and steadiness of mind. And so, um, but Harry Joyce actually uh, recommended something that I've never actually succeeded at doing myself. 
And I don't know anyone that succeeded at doing, maybe except for him, maybe Sharad is doing this, I don't know. But he recommended that as you're going through the sun salutations, just in the back of your mind, as you're breathing, engaging bandhas, lighting that fire, he recommended to have playing in the back of your mind, in the background, not in the iPad, right? But like in your mind, the entire Aditya Hurtayam, which is like a 10-minute long chant to uh, Rama. And the idea of this chant is to, uh, uh, in, it is to steady the mind so that we can achieve our goals. And so he said that sun salutations create like a very precise mind and that this, uh, the chanting, the Aditya Hurtayam in the background at the same time would increase that kind of precision in the sun salutations. So you have a lot of obstacles there. First, you must memorize the Aditya Hurtayam to such a degree, so it can be playing in the back of your mind like a tune, and it's a 10-minute Sanskrit chant. So good luck, right? <laughs> so we just try to do the opening prayer, and we're like, what was that line? Is a, it was a shanka, a chakra. It was a, shank, it was a chakra. What's going on, right? Then we have to memorize 10 minutes of Sanskrit. Oh, this is difficult now, you know? So I have succeeded at pressing play on the Aditya Hurtayam and then taking sun salutation. Oh, this is nice. You know, a friend of mine, a friend of ours who we opened Miami Life Center with, Greg Nardi, he used to chant the Aditya Hurtayam for the students. So he would just be there, like the live version rather than the recorded version. That was beautiful. Um, but he also, I asked him, you ever do this? What, what, you know what Patavi Joyce said in the back of your head? He's like, oh no, I can't do that. I'm just trying to squeeze the bandhas and figure out how to jump forward and stretch the body. And no, it's too much. So we have this, uh, again, the, the methodology. Sun salutations are there and they're very specific purposes, warming up the body, microcosm of the practice, concentrating the mind. Standing poses are there to bring stability and to work uh, foundational strength in the practice. So although we're stretching a little bit in the standing poses, these foundational asanas are more strength-building asanas. So they're me actually meant to work the strength that supports later flexibility. And then the series are where we work particular themes of flexibility or particular themes within the body. And then we have all the series broken up into their own little lessons and the closing poses, which are the periods of integration. And the closing poses, I think, are, are, I think can be the most spiritual part of the practice because these are the asanas where you can hold for long periods of time and we get the benefits of long holds of inversions. And some of the benefits of the long holds of inversions are some of the things most written about in the traditional Hatha yoga practice. So um, one of the things that my teacher used to say, which is very, very esoteric uh, and very strange, uh, however you can find some textual evidence for it in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, is that uh, Patavi Joyce used to say that in the center of the brain, also again in Hatha Yoga Pradipika and some other Hatha Yoga texts, that there is a vital life essence, almost like a secretion that comes from the glands of the brain that, that he called and what Hatha Yoga Pradipika calls the Amrit Bindu. And the Amrit Bindu is, like a, is, is sort of translated as a pearl of our life essence or like a sacred secretion. Right? So you're thinking like, this is weird, right? First of all, this is weird. Like you're saying that I'm secreting sacred elixirs in my brain. Okay, all right. So what happens to these elixirs in the brain? Well, the Amrit Bindu is said to contain our vitality and it's said to contain kind of our life essence. And the idea is that the Amrit Bindu uh, it, it, we're born with a certain amount of it. And then as we go through our life, we deplete it. 
And what happens when we deplete this is that this, this follows the law of gravity and it drops down the body. And when it gets to the, the digestive center, it gets burnt up and we expend our life energy going around doing this and that. And these are activities that, um, in, that traditionally in the Hatha Yoga texts are said to burn away our vital life force. So what are some things that burn away our vital life force? When the Amrit Bindu gets down to the digestive system, what happens? Here are some things that they say. Excessive talking, right? Excessive talking. And what happens usually when we excessively talk, right? We usually end up gossiping, you know, complaining, engaging in repeating those old behavior patterns. So excessive talking. Uh, this is said to uh, deplete the Amrit Bindu. Uh, activities which are not aligned with the yogic path are also said to deplete the Amrit Bindu. Not getting enough sleep, not eating sufficiently or eating too much. So not eating in a balanced way, not sleeping in a balanced way. Too much sleep, too little sleep also depletes the Amrit Bindu. So basically everything we do in our life is depleting the Amrit Bindu, except our yoga practice, we change our life a little better. Now the yoga practice is said to do two things which are interesting. This is how this relates to the inversions. When you invert yourself, then this can encourage the flow of blood towards the center of the brain, which is where this sacred secretion is, is, uh, is, is emitted. And it can stimulate the production and the release of more Amrit Bindu. Hmm, cool. Second, it prevents the Amrit Bindu from slipping down to the digestive center. So we flip upside down. So we keep that sacred sec secretion where it's supposed to be in the center of the brain. Now, you know, uh, this is interesting, right? My teacher, Patabi Joyce, used to say, uh, because of this function of the Amrit Bindu, three months practice, uh, some, some positive experiences you'll feel. One year of practice, whole life is changing. Because then you spend these long times and with the postures that are most likely to have this impact, according to the traditional Hatha Yoga texts, are long hold in shoulder stand, long hold in headstand, because you hold yourself upside down. We can't hold handstand for that long, even though it's exciting, you know? We can't hold the arm balance, even though we're a little inverted for that long. We can't hold bakasana, even though we're a little inverted for that long. Shoulder stand, headstand, we can hold for a long, long time. So this really helps to awaken those sort of spiritual centers in the brain, you could say. So if you want to look for a biological kind of uh, a parallel to what you might be actually find if you were to dissect the body, I think the closest thing to a, a sacred center that emits kind of a, a secretion that could potentially be related to our life force is the pineal gland. And so the pineal gland is a really interesting little gland that has some very interesting secretions that come out of it, all right? And it affects our hormonal balance. It affects our mood and also can emit secretions that are metabolically similar to, Carlos, you'll like this, some hallucinogenic experiences. <laughs> He's like, oh God, I'm so sorry I asked that question. <laughs> so this is totally legal, all right? And you don't need to ingest anything, but you can get these like otherworldly, almost transcendental experiences from nice long holds and inversions. Traditionally, it's said that three minutes is the minimum for headstand. Three minutes is the minimum to get the impact of headstand. Right? You think three minutes, that's a long time. You know, sometimes even I, you think three minutes, I have things to do. You know, I can't spend three minutes in headstand. Actually, they say three minutes is the minimum, but five minutes is a good headstand, a five-minute headstand. So then you have to get used to timing yourself. You can time yourself with your breaths. So you can think about the length of the breath in and the length of the breath out. All right. And then if you have 
a 10 second inhale and a 10 second exhale, you can kind of do the math and figure out how many breaths you need to do three minutes. I really recommend if you haven't done three minutes, don't do five, just do three, see how that feels. Because you still need to do all that other stuff. You still need to do that half headstand, come back up and take child's pose. Start with three minutes. They do say that the benefits increase the longer you hold, reaching upwards, even up to a 30 minute headstand, right? Again, this is overwhelming, right? Because then you think, 30 minutes? Oh no, now I cannot, I don't have any time to do anything else, right? Sometimes I finish, I feel the rush at the end of practice and you get down there at the end of the practice, you start looking at the clock and then you start estimating how much time you have between the next things you need to do. And then you realize I need to hurry this up here. You know, otherwise I cannot eat and I cannot do the things I need to do. So then 30 minutes in headstand starts to feel like now I'm on a yoga starvation, you know? I didn't eat today. Why? I was in headstand. You know, you're going to tell your boss when you're like, I was late today. Why? Sorry, I had to do it 30 minutes in headstand. You know, they're going to be like, you're, uh, you're fired. Go do more yoga. You're like, okay. <laughs> so, so, so this is something I really recommend you do on, you know, when you, when you have nothing else to do for the rest of the day, you know, like uh, it, even not during this course, you have a lot of things to do in the afternoon. Like don't take five minute maximum. Otherwise also we start doing the technique very soon and then the body will get tired. So, so these benefits start to accrue. Um, and this is important. At the same time, we have to understand that this is something you work for. What you give to the practice, you can expect to get back, but you can't expect the practice to do it for you. And this means that you have to expect not to be good at it. And then what you work, what you give of yourself, the practice itself will return it to you. But you don't need to achieve a particular shape of an asana to get that benefit. Whatever you give, you get back. Not only equal, I feel like you get back at least double what you give to the practice. And you don't, in the result, see, if we, if we think that, that yoga is asana, we can end up 10 years later feeling really bitter that all the asanas haven't come. But if we understand that yoga is a spiritual practice, then we give in the form of asana and we get back in all these other ways. You know, like life improves, we're happier, we're kinder, we feel better in our bodies, we sleep better at night, our health is better, our immune system is better, we're generally a nicer human being, we have better relationships, interpersonal relations with other people, and we kind of, you know, th those hard edges on, of ourselves softened, and, and that's how we, we get back, you know? I feel like you were a success in our yoga practice, uh, the moment when people that have known us the longest in our lives, you know, like our family members, start to say things like, wow, you're so calm. Wow, that's amazing. It must be that yoga, huh? I, sh I should try, right? So like when that happens, I feel like now, now you get the stamp of approval. Yoga has worked, you know? Because the family members sometimes, if they don't do yoga themselves, then they can get a little resistant to you doing yoga. Oh, look, you're always doing yoga. Always doing that, jumping here, jumping there, putting the legs here, your legs are everywhere all the time. You know, what's well, this is so weird? What do you sit on a lotus flower all day? Right? You're like, actually, no, it's really hard. I just uh, go and suffer for about an hour and then somehow feel better. Mm -hmm. So the, as I started this talk, I wanted to make sure you understand the practice doesn't always need to feel good. And you don't need to be good at the asanas to achieve the benefit of yoga. And this is super important when we think about um, just a daily Ashtanga yoga practice, because if we come in with the idea that we will one day have 
like get these poses, then we create a transactional relationship with the yoga practice. And this is not, you know, this isn't a one-for-one exchange. It's not a zero-sum exchange in that way. It's not an economy, you could say. Instead, it's this thing, it's, it's almost like a magical multiplier where you give and you get back more and you give and you get back more. But you have to keep giving to keep getting, you have to keep practicing. The moment you start practicing, what happens? Well, the life situation comes on and all that Amrit Bindu that you've stored up, it starts descending and we just start expending it and going here and going there. You can come back to the practice, then you have to build back up again. So one of the hardest things to do is to take a long break from the practice and come back. Even a short break from the practice and come back. You know, They say it takes as a minimum uh, something like 21 days to get a new habit. Some people it can do even less. But you know that there are some people that need longer to get a new habit, right? Does anybody know the upper limit of what it takes to get a new habit? What do you think? 21 days is like average. What do you think? 250 days. There are some people that need to do something 200, for 250 days every day before it's, before it's a new habit. All right? That's crazy, huh? So these people, their yoga for them, very difficult. They go to one class. Love it. I love it. It was wonderful. They even do it for two months. Wonderful. Wonderful. Third month, donuts. is nicer, you know? And those easier habits are more likely to do for 250 days. But to change a patterning is harder for that person, right? And you don't, we don't know why. Is it because they have so much patterning in the opposite direction? Or is it because it's just, it takes them that long to build a new groove? Was it difficult for them to learn in that way? I don't know. I know that there are people that have different, the, the, physically, we're all different. Um, and this is something also important because, you know, in the level of like the spirit, when we no longer have a body, I really do believe we're all equal. But here on this planet, we all have different sizes and shapes and we're different. You know, people have different things they do well and people have different life experiences. We're all different. It's okay. You know, we don't need to be the same. Uh, it'd be boring, actually. Or this would be not, uh, not exciting. So when we think about that, um, this is something that, 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 that not only in yoga, but in any physical discipline, you can see. There are some people, they're, they're naturally really talented movers, you know? So naturally, they, can, they get it quite quickly, you know? And there are some people that, uh, they, that, that, that they don't naturally get it, but they respond very well to training, so very quickly, with a little training, they get it, and their bodies respond well to training. They get a big results. Then there are people who don't respond well to training, and they're not naturals, right? And these people actually win the hearts and souls of the whole planet because you see them putting in the work, putting in the work, putting in the work. They just, you know, if they can do it, they go and they put in the work, they put in the work, they put in the work, get very little result, have very little natural talent, and they keep showing up and putting in the work, putting in the work, putting in the work. And um, there are a lot of stories about, you know, Olympic athletes that were not naturally talented and don't take well to training, but gave so much of their heart and soul that they end up being the best, which is really interesting. So we think, oh, it's just natural talent. You're to be born like that. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. So I, for one, am someone that the first time I try something, I do not get it. Absolutely not. Like the first, the first many times I try, I don't get it. And I need, I need a lot of time and space on my own with nobody watching to figure things out. And I love the students who get it with like little instruction. It's wonderful. But I also know that sometimes I give instruction and that student's gonna take it home and work on it. And maybe a year later, something will, they'll be like, oh, that makes sense. Maybe 10 years later, oh, I finally get it. You know, and then getting it in your practice doesn't always equal um, the results. Sometimes it's just a change in the feeling in the body.
So what's the takeaway? First of all, again, remember, practice doesn't always have to feel good. You don't always have to feel good when you leave your practice, not emotionally nor physically. And that doesn't mean that practice is failing. You don't need to make a good-looking asana in order to be good at the yoga practice. You just need to keep showing up and giving of yourself to the practice. Mm -hmm. Some days after practice, you may feel emotionally down. And this is okay too, right? Remember that this is, this is part of the practice. You don't, sometimes we leave feeling amazing, but sometimes we leave feeling, for no reason, sad, down, depressed. And it's usually not no reason. There's usually a culprit somewhere in the practice. Who can guess what is the number one culprit of usually leaving your practice feeling down, even if you had a good practice? What do you think? Hmm? I would say backbending, actually. <laughs> Normally, we take really, really deep. If you do, if you do good, good deep backbends, then what can often happen is later in the day, like you just feel a little like, oh, I feel sad. I'm not sure why. You know, we feel a little sensitive. And you may feel high at first, like, yay. And then suddenly, like, later in the day, like, ooh, I, I feel, hmm. And if it hasn't happened yet, you know, there's more backbends uh, that you can continue to do. And that's, it's interesting uh, the way that that happens. Sometimes it's instant. You know, like, you do a backbend and immediately you feel vulnerable. But sometimes you have a great backbend day and then you feel emotional later in the day. It's not the only thing. We can feel, you know, uh, emotional reactions from all sorts of things, you know, anything from uh, rain on the way over to stubbing our toe in the middle of practice to realizing that we hate our yoga mat in the middle of the practice. All sorts of things can bring about, uh, you know, weird moods and feelings. So this was all I wanted to say to everyone today. Um, I think, uh, Beatrice, are there any questions from, from everyone at home? There's a question from Federica. She says, thank you so much, Kina, for this great class. It really helps to watch students at the same time. Good. So thank you, everyone. I feel often quite stiff despite practicing regularly. What do you suggest doing to help us? I suggest that you keep practicing if you feel very stiff. And I don't think there's any solution. I think, remember, you don't need to be getting better at the asanas to be getting the benefit of yoga. So Richard Freeman, it says this great phrase that Frederica, this is for you, where he says, blessed are the stiff for they shall do yoga. All right. So sometimes the flexible people don't end up doing yoga because they just flop into the posture and they think they're actually doing the deep work of feeling the connection between mind, body and breath. But they're just there uh, just doing what they're naturally able to do. And that's not yoga. Right? Yoga is not stretching. Yoga is the connection between mind, body and breath using the platform of the asana. So as long as you're doing that, you're getting the benefit. Second, if you haven't made any progress physically, then there are, there are some things to, to kind of to, to take a look at. Um, my husband is, uh, he will tell you himself, he doesn't think of himself as naturally flexible, but you know, if you put Tim next to any random person, he's pretty darn flexible, you know? Like anybody that can put their leg behind their head compared to like the average citizen of the United States of America, pretty darn flexible. But he's like, I'm so stiff, I'm so stiff. So, you know, when, that's because he says, that's because he's looking at me warming up and I'm, you know, <laughs> but then I look at him and I'm like, I'm so weak, I'm so weak, you know? So, um, so when Tim goes to India uh, and he wants to do deeper backbends and he cares more about that than he does here in Miami. Then he makes changes to his diet, which create a lot of suffering. As you know, no more donuts, right? So donuts immediately are gone. No more donuts, donuts, no more. Also, there's not so many donuts in India. So at least in Mysore itself, there's, there's like Indian versions of them, but the particular donuts he likes is not there. So then also he removes some, some, some food items that 
uh, he has noticed in his body generate more stiffness, but also generate high amounts of pleasure. So in India, when he wants to be more flexible, he removes those pleasurable items, including donuts, for him, including cheese. He loves cheese, and he eats large quantities of cheese. And when we, <laughs> it's true, he'll tell you that, you know? And when he goes to India, he removes the cheese, and then he removes the donuts and any other items that he feels are creating uh, obstacles to uh, the flexibility that he would like to have over there. And it changes the lifestyle and goes to bed earlier and does all sorts of things that are, are poised to that. So he can make a major lifestyle change. So that is possible to explore and experiment with changing radically some things that are in your diet or your lifestyle that could potentially make an impact on flexibility. But you have to make a trade-off. So like when Tim comes back to the U.S., donuts and cheese come right back on the table. Um, so, you know, it's like a, it's a question of, you know, what are, you know, it's some, we make, we have to make a reasonable, you know, a reasonable trade-off to figure out how do you, how do you want to feel in, in the body and what's it worth? You know, so it's, it's, it's really a, the, the feeling in the body that we're, that we're interested in. Okay? And keep practicing. And don't push for flexibility. Because if we push too hard with flexibility, then unfortunately we can get very easily injured. <laughs> oh, it's the European cheese experience. So I grew up in the United States, and I don't know if, um, I, like, I just have, I didn't really grow up eating cheese. I remember that um, there were the American, like, like, like individually, like, cellophane-wrapped craft singles that were in my uh, parents' refrigerator, and I, like, that's kind of what I grew up as cheese, and I was like, I don't like cheese. You know, and then the second alternative, if I wanted something called cheese, was a can called Easy Cheese. I don't know if any, has anybody seen this Easy Cheese? It's, it's kind of embarrassing, right? So then uh, you shake the can, and then you press a, a plastic nozzle, and a um, a, a, a grooved uh, a stream of a an orange substance comes out uh, that's supposed to be sprayed on things like hot dogs. For example, is a good easy cheese uh, thing to put on, um, you know. So this is this was a cheese that I grew up with. So it was when I met my husband, and he was he was like eating these. I was like, "What is that?" He's like, "This is cheese." Oh, that's cheese. It's not in a can. You don't know the squeeze thing. You know, it's not individually wrapped. It came in a block, and you know. And uh, when we first met, I tried all these interesting cheeses, and I was like, "This is." Very interesting, you know, very tasty. It's a much more tasty than the easy cheese. So I really feel you if you're a European and you grew up with all those really nice, rich European cheeses and it's a part of your culture. So I think like with my husband, he goes to India and at that particular time, it's worth it to give up all of those, you know, good uh, feeling associations. And he comes back home and he's like, give me my cheese, please. Right. And sometimes I think it's a little bit, again, it's that trade-off, right? So if we, go, if we go deeper into yoga recommendations about dietary guidelines, there's another much-loved food item that is recommended to avoid. Who knows this one? Garlic. Oh, oh no. And now the Italians, they start crying, garlic, garlic. How am I going to live without the garlic? And the garlic, no life, right? So occasionally, you know, Patabi Joyce says, oh, you take yoga diet, no garlic for you. No garlic, no garlic. What I'm going to eat, you know? So again, the, the garlic, 
It was supposed to said to stimulate the states of mind of mind that we're trying to avoid, like desire, anger, uh, too much passion. So we are describing the Italian culture. You know, I'm just kidding, right? Sort of, sort of, right? And uh, we're trying to remove this uh, excess of passion, desire, lustfulness, these sorts of states. And for whatever, for whatever it's worth, true or false, I don't know. You need to experience that for yourself. That the um, traditional yoga philosophy says try to remove the garlic from the diet. I used to love garlic, you know. Actually, I still kind of like it. But after so many times, my teacher saying no garlic, no garlic, no garlic. Then on like Friday, you eat garlic and you're like, oh, now I'm being so bad. You know, wow, how many, you know, <laughs> how pure have you been? But like now you eat like a garlic naan and you're like, wow, this is really rebellious. I'm rebelling over here. Uh, let me get my garlic naan with a little cheese sprinkled on it. <laughs> so I don't know if the vegan cheese has the same impact on the, on the body as, um, you know, the, the cow milk cheese. You have to do that experiment. They're just now making really yummy vegan cheese. So many people, I'll be able to figure that out in about 10 years. Um, so what I mean to bring up with that is you always have to make a trade-off between this, this, this dietary change could potentially, if I do the experiment, I get this result in the body. However, is letting go of this such a good positive benefit that I'm willing to let go of all the cultural, social, and emotional associations that that brings with me? And if so, then yes, like for me, not eating cheese is just like, like super easy. Like it was really easy to say, I don't want craft singles and easy cheese. Like I kind of made that decision all by myself, even before I ever started yoga, you know? Um, but if you have a strong cultural association, a historical or social association with something, then it's very, it, it creates, it's something is quite different. You know, uh, like if you told me to never eat, never drink orange juice again, I think I might be like, but why? Uh, it's good for you, and it's oranges. You know, what could be most more pure than that? So this is important to think about. All right. Good. There what other questions? Question okay. Good question. So in a big, broad, general sense about the yoga diet, everyone's body is different. So I don't think that there are any big, broad proclamations that we can make that says all yogis should eat like this. Every time I meet someone, they have their own, everyone has their own personal philosophy about diet. One time I met a yogi who said, we shall only eat how much food we can hold in two cups of the hand like this twice a day. And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh. I am starving already, you know? I like fruits, what can I eat? This is one mango, I get two mangoes the whole day, then I'm starving, it's ridiculous. No, I can't eat this, I want like 10 mangoes, you know? So this is not cool. Then I meet someone else, oh, the stomach shall remain half empty at all times. Half empty? This is terrible, I'm never full, this is awful. You know, and so you meet someone, then they say that, and then they follow this, and you watch them, and you're like, oh, and you have a guilty conscience, oh, my stomach is full now, I feel very bad. You know, and this is not like that. Nothing like that. Other people, they like, uh, like my husband, he eats a lot of cheese. I think if I as much cheese as him, I think I might actually turn into a, the cow. Um, but, um, you know, so when we think about what diet is working for us, we have to do the experiment within our own body. And this is important. 
This way, you also avoid being programmed by dietary fads that come and go like crazy. You know, like when I was growing up, every two years, it was like a new diet. And my parents did it. You know, they'd be like, let's do Nutrisystem. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, they're like, not for you, though. And I'm like, ah, I'm living here. I'm eating, you know, what are you, I'm eating that, too. Now, then we did, like, the, the fat-free diet craze. If you remember, like, the Snackwells diet experience. Remember those, like, Snackwells? You grew up. <laughs> Do they still exist? I don't know. So I'm like, we went through that. Like, Snackwells craze. And then there was the Atkins diet. You know, so then there's that, that diet, and then there's this diet, and then there's that diet. Now there's like the paleo diet, and then the macrobiotic diet, and the raw vegan diet, and the this and that. You got to do the experiment within your body. And what I re really recommend is to create at some moment like a neutral palette uh, within the body, um, so that or a neutral canvas, you could say, so that you, you come to a very, a, 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 and you can do this with um, kind of a, like a month-long cleanse where you slowly remove everything and until you get to between one to two days of only water fasting, which is very difficult. So that's why I say one to two days maximum. And then you slowly reintroduce foods so that you have a baseline to feel how that impacts your body. And it, that way you do that experiment for yourself. So you think, oh, grains, you know, some people think they have a gluten, aller the, a gluten allergy. Well, if you have a total neutral palate and then you specifically introduce that, you'll be able to directly feel. If you think you're lactose intolerant and you are interested in consuming dairy products, then you have a neutral palate and then you bring that in and you, exper and you experience that. Alternatively, you can work with uh, someone uh, who's a professional that can test, like do blood testing and, and work on that. But not everyone has the time or the money to go through all of that. So we all, I really believe we all need to individually find that. Even now they're taking some, they're doing some, some interesting studies uh, that show that each individual body, not only based on our organ health, but based on the unique microbes that are in our, our gut, our intestinal system, will impact which foods are better poised to be digested in our body. So, you know, we really, it's very, very personal and individual. So like that, I don't think there are any rules. For me, um, in terms of uh, my husband ha has probably introduced me to the most yummy grain that exists. And so we get this sourdough bread here in Miami and also in Denmark, which is very exciting. And I think that's probably one of my favorite grains uh, that exists. Uh, the, the sourdough bread is really, really good, especially this like Danish sourdough bread, which like you almost can't get outside of Denmark. Um, so, uh, you know, bread and cheese seems to be a very Danish experience, and that's something that I've been influenced on. Although I'm part Japanese, so I grew up eating a lot of rice and a lot of white rice. So this is also high on my list of grains that I like. Pasta for me is low on my list of things that I like. You know, I just wasn't really... Uh, it, it, the kind of pasta that I grew up with was not this, like, fresh, beautiful Italian pasta. It was, like, in a can called spaghetti. So um, that was not really, you know, again, our cultural associations, I think particular childhood associations mean a lot. Uh, so you got to make the, your own decisions. Sometimes what we grow up eating is also not good, good for us and we need to pivot and make a change. So this is also important to think about. So in other words, I can't answer the question for you. You have to answer the question for yourself. Pain-related questions. Pain okay. Hey, Kathleen, good question. And thanks for asking me to go deeper into that. So what I mean by pain is I mean the concept of dukkha. 
And when I mean by the concept of dukkha, uh, we have to unpack that. We translate this English word as pain. And then you're right, we can get into these concepts of like no pain, no gain, and pushing ourselves too hard. But it's more uh, this concept of dukkha, which is more like suffering, you know, and it's more like just a feeling of n not goodness. And when we think about that, a classic example will be a yoga posture where our joints are 100% safe, but our muscles are talking to us in a way that generates a, a, a question. And we think that, oh, I shouldn't, like, this should just be easy. And instead of recognizing that, okay, I'm working this muscle and this muscle, I might get sore after, and instead of running from, you know, a little bit of soreness, instead of running from a little bit of discomfort, even if it's not any physical discomfort, it could be emotional discomfort, it could be the feeling of just wanting to exit the posture, it can also be psychological discomfort, the, com the discomfort of comparison, and uh, uh, sort of unhealthy judgments. So it's more this feeling of we have to accept the presence of dukkha in the practice. We cannot go in and expect everything to just flow. Another experience of dukkha in the practice is the awkward feeling of like, I just don't really get what's going on here, you know, and feeling out of place when everyone is like doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And you're the awkward one who's like, you know, where's my hand go? And so that's another experience of dukkha. So it's more the concept of being willing to accept discomfort being willing to accept uh, some elements of suffering, you know, and while at the same time, an absolutely good point uh, to bring up is not pushing towards the point of uh, pain that leads to injury. And because uh, this is another, this is another kind of pain loop that kind of comes on, right? When we think that uh, we had a student once that came in and said that they like pain and that's why they chose Ashtanga yoga. And we're like, it's also not the point, you know? It's also like we're just trying to accept those pains and those sufferings that are there without running from them, but we don't need to go in search of more pain or more suffering, nor do we need to engage in activities that would generate suffering um, unnecessarily. So uh, generally, working with the physical body, what I like to say is make sure that your joints are safe. At the same time, be willing to be sore in the muscles pretty much every day for the rest of your life. You know, you do a practice and the next day you could feel, oh, my, I, I have evidence that I've worked my abdominal muscles because they're a little sore. Oh, I have evidence that my back muscles were involved in backbending yesterday. Oh, my thigh muscles were burning yesterday in the practice. This is all, these are all things that are generally okay. And I find that sometimes people get very afraid of any feeling that's not happy in the body. Any feeling that's not, this is just, this feels so good and I'm totally in my comfort zone and I feel great. Everything works for me when I do this. And so what we want to do is be willing to step out of that into the realm of, this is uncomfortable for me. I don't know if I, you know, I don't, I don't really know where I am. And maybe, oh, that's a weird muscle. I've never felt that before. Let me be with it. So we have to be willing to go into those states. So I hope that makes a little bit more sense. And we definitely want to avoid the kind of pain competition, push harder idea, because then we're moving away from that mind-body subtle unification. Um, and the reason for this discussion, the reason for the necessity of this, is if we take it out of asana and then we bring it purely into the meditative mind, and those of us who were sitting yesterday, we experienced this as well, uh, is that when we remove asana, 
from the equation and we take that lesson into the spiritual path alone. So for example, only using meditation as an example, we remove the risk of injury. If we remove the risk of injury, which comes up in asana, then there's absolutely no reason not to accept whatever pain arises. It's the risk of injury in asana that we want to avoid because you don't, you know, you want to, you want to have a healthy body to continue walking around and doing your thing. But if we just take a comfortable seated meditation posture and then all of those same burning sensations arise, like our back is on fire. Even if you feel there are tingly sensations that if you were doing your yoga practice, you would avoid. If you're in a seated meditation posture and those same sensations arise, there's no risk of injury. There's no risk of injury. So as soon as you remove the risk of injury, then all pain becomes acceptable, which is a whole other way of, it's mind-blowing. And I will say that, although it doesn't sound fun, it kind of sounds like, mm, right? Is meditation just sitting with pain? You know, I will say that there is great liberation in being willing to sit with your pain, whether that's emotional pain, or physical pain. And there's, there's a lot of misery in running from pain. And I feel like our, if our, we could make a massive update to our culture, our society, if we could all learn how to be more comfortable with our own pain, whether, and it's mostly emotional that manifests physically in that way. And so I think, I think it's a really big lesson, an important lesson from the spiritual path that we need to learn to navigate for ourselves. And, and, and it gets into a gray zone when we lose our agency as individuals and we start giving that agency away and just start thinking, okay, I'm just going to take this because this person said so. And instead, when you're doing, like you're literally your own practice and then you go into a place of discomfort, whether it's a meditation or yoga, and then you sit with it and you accept it and you learn how to work with it. And then we can transcend or we can become equanimous in the face of dukkha. This is a big lesson in the spiritual path. And it can change our life. Mm -hmm. Okay. When you injure yourself in practice, do you stop practicing during the day? Do you practice meditation? Do you do yoga something? Good question. So Tertia has a question about injuries. And the injury question uh, is interesting. And this is also something depends on what the injury is. Whenever I personally have gotten an injury, it's been I've almost rarely injured myself during the practice. My most injuries have come from teaching. You know, I would, I would be holding my body in a weird position, uh, helping a student, prioritizing the student over myself, and then walk away being like, oh, that feels weird now. I need to go to the chiropractor and see what has happened to me. <laughs> or I had, uh, and most Dashtanga yoga teachers get an injury or an overuse strain in the quadratus lumborum or the QL from helping people with backbends. And this is something that um, you, like a lot of long-term uh, Mysore-style Ashtanga yoga teachers end up with because they'll put their dominant foot in front and help people with backbends. And it's probably the most uh, non-anatomically aligned position to help other people in because you're, you're, you're rounding your back to give them more space and bearing weight. And it's asymmetrical. So I, 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 almost every teacher, myself included, has gone through this period where my QL has just gone completely bonkers from giving assists. And I had a wrist injury that came up from giving assists. Um, you know, like it's hard work to be a yoga teacher. You're never gonna, I mean, 
talk to people, just speak. It's one thing to go and physically help people. Same thing like massage therapy or physical therapy. You're giving of your own body to other people a lot. So I worked through all of those. Every time these things came up, I modify the practice. I, I, I keep doing Nashtanga practice, modify if I need to. I went through a period where I could not bear weight on my hands, so I, but I could bear weight in the shoulders. So I was doing like all of this um, forearm balance kind of stuff. I did a forearm instead of um, a plank, and that actually was really good for strengthening the shoulders. When I had the QL uh, situation, I, I did some physical therapy exercise to create uh, more stability in the QL, and that informed my practice a little bit as well. Um, so for me, I modify and then I continue. However, that being said, I really believe there's one exception to this. If you have an impact injury that is acute that doesn't come from your yoga practice, what's, what's, what's that going to be like? You got into a car accident, right? Uh, I really hope, you know, I hope everyone stays totally safe, doesn't happen to anyone. But you trip and fall. Uh, or, or, you have, or you have a thing where you, 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 you were jumping for some reason. I don't know. Maybe you like to jump. Uh, and then suddenly you jumped and you landed weird and twisted your knee. And then this. So some impact injury that doesn't come from your yoga practice, it's really recommended. I, and I really recommend you're going to want to practice the next day. But it's really recommended 24 to 72 hours of complete rest when it's in the acute stage. We'll go, absolutely go see a doctor. And then after that period, you can start to uh, you know, modify the practice and come back. But that initial period of total rest after an acute impact injury is very, very important. And if you do your yoga, your, during your yoga practice, you shouldn't have an injury that comes like that unless you do something really like completely bonkers. Um, I mean, just out of ordinary is what I mean by bonkers. I had, there was a, a student once who almost, who almost fell out of a, a second story um, uh, building because they were using a, 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 a very thin window to kick up to. So they were, they broke the window and then they were like hanging out of the window and they got quite hurt from that. But, uh, so this is, um, like use a wall, but not a window, you know, and the higher up you go, the more important that guidance is, you know, it's like Miami, we've got these like 60 story residential buildings. If you're on like, if you are anything above the first floor, don't kick up to the window, get a nice wall. You know, you don't want to trust that too much. You know, want to be 60 stories and be like, ah, I was doing a handstand, you know? Nice wall. Okay. Any questions from anyone here? Sir, Sean, you got a question? <laughs> so the way that it works is that garlic is considered more more um, damaging than onions, but onions too are considered to stimulate um, uh, desire desire and lust rather than desire, lust, and greed rather than garlic, which is said to stimulate desire, lust, greed, anger, uh, and anxiety. So we can choose our torture. Maybe we're good with a little desire and lust, but we want to avoid anger and anxiety. So maybe the onions are still good. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it, you take everything with a grain of salt, right? But I think uh, one of the things you can, you can experience is that if you eat the raw product, or, or, or item, then you can kind of taste its natural state. So, you know, raw garlic. <laughs> you try to take a bite of that. 
you know, a couple of days later, you're going to be like, okay, I need to see the dentist or something. And also the raw onions are also pretty darn intense. You know, you try to take a, you know, take a bite out of a raw onion. You know, this video that went around with this guy who caught COVID and he lost a sense of smell and taste. And then he, he did this video where he was eating, like taking bites out of raw onions and garlic to show that it didn't like how serious the illness, the, the leftover impacts of the illness were. Um, so I think if you eat the raw product, the raw thing, then we can sort of see how potent uh, the impact of that is. So in the same yoga methodology, which has its which has its roots in the sister discipline of Ayurveda, of which I'm not anywhere near a master, but just have, you know, uh, uh, looked at a little bit in relation to the impact on the yoga practice and the guidance of my teacher saying, don't eat it this or that, right? So um, both onions and garlic are recommended to be used medicinally so that uh, they're considered to be both be strong antimicrobials and antibacterials and flu fighters and these sort of things, so that if the body and the immune system is in need of a boost, then it can be recommended to do a strong onions and garlic kind of installation. Mm -hmm. Again, take it with a grain of salt, you know? So like Tim, he did, you know, he lets go of cheese for that period of time and then <laughs> back to the cheese, you know? <laughs> and then you had the question, yeah. Yes, um, I was thinking about the Fear. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. So, so if everyone at home didn't hear, um, uh, the question is about fear, and does fear fall into dukkha? Definitely, fear falls into dukkha, emotional suffering. Right. It falls into that area of discomfort. And so what we do with fear, how do we work with it, is a really big lesson for the practice. Some people will think um, that I should have no fear. No, that's not true. We have to have healthy fear here and there. You know, you go near the edge of a skyscraper, you should feel healthy fear. You know, you're, something is wrong if you go onto the edge of the 60th story and then you look down and you're like, Yoo-hoo! you know, we should feel a healthy fear. So unless until you're comfortable in headstand, you're going to feel a, a normal fear of falling. Now, the idea is how to work with that dukkha, how to work with that discomfort emotional state. And what we don't want to do is disrespect the fear. So some people will say that, oh, you know, just do it anyway. Who cares? No, no, no. You want to go in and become intimate with that sensation. And you, at the same time as you become intimate with that sensation, the way we work with dukkha uh, in that case is to become very present to everything that you're feeling in a very calm, neutral manner, so that you watch the fear, like you just observe it within the body. And in the act of observation, you make a slight separation of your identification or your ego from that fear. And sooner or later, when the ego is not attached to it, that fear goes away, right? Second half of making the fear go away is you need to get more comfortable in the posture. You get more comfortable in the posture, you get more experiences that you're okay in the pose, then the fear lessens. But in the meanwhile, we have to create that space between the fear and the identity of personality, between the fear and the ego. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? You go in, you're taking headstand, you feel the fear. Instead of thinking, oh no, here the fear is, oh my God, oh my God, here it is, ah, I don't know, should I go down, what should I do? Then you observe, fear is present. What does it feel like? What does it feel like? Oh, I'm afraid, what's that like? What's the sensation of fear? Become, become inquisitive about it. What's it like? Am I shaking? Do I feel shaking? Yes, I'm shaking. Oh, fear. When I feel fear, I shake, shaking, shaking. Oh, what else is going on? I cannot breathe. Oh, 
I cannot breathe. I'm breathing like this. Oh, I'm afraid. Wonderful. My body's shaking. I've disturbed breathing. And uh, oh, my muscles no longer activate. This is a very common fear response. What do you know when we're afraid? Sometimes we're afraid. We collapse. Some people have that. Other people do the opposite when they're afraid. Wee, everything. Oh my God. I can't believe it. You have to figure out which one you are. Good information, you know? Because headstand, although scary, is not the only time you're going to feel fear in your whole lifetime. So it's very useful to learn how to remain equanimous to the experience of fear. Because fear, so if we go back to our class from yesterday, fear can trigger the whole neuro, neurobiological response of the negativity bias and bring us into that whole fight, flight, or freeze response. Whereas if you become equanimous and neutral to it, when that fear arises, you can be a little, you can create a wall of immunity against those old destructive thought patterns, giving you the space to craft a new course of action. Mm -hmm. So it's great work, actually. I love that you feel the fear in headstand. It's kind of awesome that you get to work with that, you know? Uh, everybody going to feel fear at some, at some posture. It's important that you don't need to do beyond the point where you feel the fear. But the moment that that fear is present, you stop and you become intimate with it. You just feel it, feel it. I'm feeling my fear. I'm becoming intimate with it. Here's the fear breath. Here's the body when it's in fearfulness. Here's what my muscles do. Let me see if I can tune into my mula bandha. Does it squeeze or does it disengage in the moment of fear? What are my eyeballs doing? Where am I looking? Am I closing my eyes and shutting the world out? Or am I like gripping somewhere in the, you know, in the optic nerve is squeezing? So the drishti can change or your gazing point can change. Some people, when they feel fear, tense their eyes and, and shorten their gaze. Some people stare and like zone out when they feel fear. You have to know this about yourself. This is why we say yoga is self-realization because you're learning who am I when I feel fear. That's this mirror that's getting shined on. And you don't need to go further than that. Just the fact that the fear has arisen, the asana has worked. Make sense? Mm -hmm. Usually what's interesting about that is the moment we become genuinely inquisitive, genuinely interested, oh, I can't wait to do headstand next time because I'm going to touch my fear. Oh, where's the fear? Okay, I'm ready for it. Where are you, fear? Come to me. Come on, fear. Come on, I'm ready for you. I want to study you. Where are you? And the fear is like, oh, oh I don't belong there anymore. Let me go visit someone else. Oh, she looks like she doesn't want it. I go there. You know, it's like a cat that comes over. You're like, please, where are you? Come closer, come closer, and run away. So the moment you become truly, it's happened for me all the time when there's, a, when there's some state that I don't want to experience that I'm running away from, the moment I become so inquisitive and open to it staying, it's gone. So, you know, if you genuinely get inquisitive, maybe it's gone. But if you want a gun, it'll stay. <laughs> yeah. Good. Super. Anything else in the chat, Beatrice? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so the teaching of uh, avoidance of pain and attachment to pleasure is thousands of years old. Uh, now, I think definitely the United States culture has a little bit of accentuation of uh, pleasure seeking. Uh, I definitely think uh, this is something accentuated in the culture of uh, the United States. However, the teaching of avoidance of pain and uh, attachment to pleasure is thousands of years old. We find dukkha nushayidveshaha and patanjali sukha nushayiragaha. When we experience pain, we run from it. When we experience pleasure, we want to hold on to it. The teaching of the Buddha, uh, you know, from more than 2,000 years ago is based on the same concept. Suffering is, dukkha is. Natural human tendency is to run away from pain. So this is teaching has been around for thousands of years. 
right? Because this is the human condition. We as human beings, we do this. The untrained mind will just run, run from pain, run towards pleasure. This will define every moment of our life. Uh, some part of me feels like, you know, as a species, we're pretty slow learners, you know, because this teaching's been around for thousands of years. The Buddha sat there, stop running from pain. You know, 2,500 years later, we're like, what was that again? Uh, excuse me, uh, could you repeat the thing about uh, dukkha? Uh, I haven't gotten it. You know, 2,500 years later, the human species, we're still like, yes, but does that really apply to me? You know, I, I, you'd go ahead and do that, right? Uh, so I think, um, you know, take us 250,000 years to make a new habit, you know, to update the, the genetic code of the human species. <laughs> Anything else? Oh, so first of all, um, this is very, very important for everyone. If you go to a class, you, as, as long as it doesn't harm your physical body, your emotional body, you try to do your best to do what the teacher says. Uh, that being said, you also try not to put the teacher on this unapproachable pedestal. So if you're feeling like the teacher says only take half primary, but you feel dejected, you have to talk to the teacher. You have to go up and say, I really want to respect your teaching and I'll totally do only half primary if that's what you want. However, I did learn the full primary and I'm really used to doing it and I feel kind of depressed. Uh, so what do you think? Uh, what's the logic? Why do you want me to only do half primary? Because maybe there's a teaching in there. And if you share that, uh, you know, then the, this allows you and the teacher to speak as equals uh, rather than you just saying like, oh, the teacher said that, so I do that or that's it. So we want to go in and, and share because maybe they don't know that you, uh, they don't know that you feel the way that you feel. That being said, whenever you're in class, if, you're if the teacher says, look, I still really want you to only do half primary for a little while. That's what I feel is the traditional practice. When you go to class, you do that. You do it, whatever you do at your home, you do what feels good in your home. You know, this is important because when you're practicing at home, just the fact that you're practicing, yay! Home practice is difficult. You unrolled the mat. Congratulations. There are thousands of things to do at home. Laundry, dishes, general cleaning, sorting through the mail, taxes from last year, all kinds of things that are just there at any moment that you could do. Family, pets, you know, gardening, uh, all sorts of things. Painting the walls, anything is more interesting than practice when you're home, right? Then you, then you unrolled your mat, you do whatever feels good for you that makes you keep coming back to the mat, okay? You're in, the you're in class with a teacher, you need to navigate that kind of relationship between teacher and student. And I think it's important to find a way to respect the teacher's authority while validating your own agency and to create and generate conversations is, is very important. Rather than saying, oh, the teacher says this, so that's what I do, and then you feel bad. Because honestly, the teacher might not know that it has that impact on you. They might just be thinking, she'll learn, this is what I wanna, what I want her to do. Or they might also be thinking, I just want her to do that for you know, a week or two so that I can get to know her practice. And then after I see her do in half primary and I see that she's committed, then she can do more. Because if you knew you only had to do it for a month, you'd probably be like, all right, I'll do it for a month, no problem. But there's no communication 
then, you know, we're in this kind of gray zone where our agency is going away and then the teacher is claiming some authority that could, that, that should be shared, I kind of feel like. And this is, um, you know, an important, important thing to, to consider. Um, and this includes not only your teacher at home, but this also includes me if you take a class with me. It also includes um, Sharat if you take a class with him. It's very difficult for people to talk to Sharat. I see it all the time in India. People are like, oh my God, today he told me I have to stop in Mary Chasanasi. So I stopped, but I don't want to stop. What do I do? And then they never talk to him. And then, and then there's a lot of people. Then he doesn't look at that person for three years. Then for three years, they're in Mari Chasanasi. I'm in Mari Chasanasi, three years. Do you think it's because he doesn't like me? You know, do you think it's because I, I eat too much garlic and onions? Do you think, uh, what do you think it is? You know, is it bad karma? What I'm like, do you talk to him? Do you say, uh, can I do an expose? No, 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 no. I don't talk to the teacher. No, I just go. I keep my head down. I do my practice. Okay, well, you're probably blending in, you know? So I, I've, I've encouraged students in that time, go talk to him. You're stuck in right justice. You want to do more? Go say, I want to do more. No, don't. Go talk to him. He's a human being. Go and say, I, you have Mari Chasanasi, three years. Definitely, you shouldn't be there for three years. Go and talk to him. Go and talk to him. Then usually the response is, what? Why are you only doing Mari Chasanasi? What's your problem? You take next pose tomorrow. <laughs> you know? And so it's interesting, right? So sometimes you, it's an important lesson also to be willing to approach someone that you view as an authority and kind of claim space for your own voice as well. And I think that's an important lesson. And we don't need to you know, be super, you know, we don't need to be, you know, it's, it's not, we don't need to be intense about it. It's just a question of, I want to go and talk to this person and, you know, like engage on a human to human level. And we have this, um, the idea that the teaching should be a benefit, not only for the student, but for the teacher as well. And so this also creates that possibility that the teaching can be a benefit for the teacher as well. Yeah, so it's a good question. Why yoga? Why not just take meditation? You know, um, why do we have to do all these asanas? Why not meditation? It's a good question. Some people answer the question, you know, I don't need asana. I can just sit. Some people have that answer. I don't actually need asana. I just want, I can just sit. You know, I, we talked about yesterday, the Dalai Lama is a great example of that. You know, some stretching, I'm sure, he's a little movement is doing. So uh, my entry into the spiritual path was through asana. Uh, and I started sitting relatively soon after I started doing asana. But I tried to, I tried to do meditation before I did asanas, and it, it was inaccessible to me. So my yoga teacher said that we, we take asana to prepare the mind and body for meditation. And this is interesting to think about because our minds are very jumpy. We're thinking here, we're thinking there. We're doing the asana. The fact that we're doing that asana slows the mind down. And then after many years of that, we can, we're more primed for deeper states of meditation. So there's that. Second thing, um, if you're not flexible and you try to sit on the floor for long periods of time, you become very, very much in the, the suffering is very, very high. Even if you try to sit on a chair, if you're not very flexible, the suffering is very, very high. The body that doesn't feel good is quite painful. So the asanas are there to kind of create like, like a, like a ground zero. So like, you know, like a, a point where we're not starting off, uh, like meditation practices with like minus five. So you sit on the floor, if you're immediately in severe pain, it's going to be hard to meditate. You're just going to be sitting in just in a lot of pain. Um, that being said, you know, if you're able to sit through that, there's great liberation in it. But a lot of people would quit. 
So my yoga teacher said, we need asana as a primer for these more subtle practices. And, um, you know, I, I really prioritized asana over sitting for many years. But over the last 10 years, I started to want them to be equal so that, so that at least, maybe more, but at least as much time as I spent in asana, I want to have at least that much time uh, in, in meditation as well. Third. For everyone at home, um, the question was, um, are there some skeptics who say that Ashtanga yoga is not good for you? Absolutely. Are you kidding? People love to hate everything. Everybody says people that hate donuts. People out there, somebody's got a blog out there that says, I hate donuts. You know, then they write this, why, you know, why donuts are bad for you in 10 steps or less. You know, there's people that hate Ashtanga and say Ashtanga is terrible. Here's the five reasons why. There's people that hate yin yoga and list the 25 reasons why it's bad for your body. There's people that, that hate sleep. I literally spoke with someone who hates sleep who was trying to convince me, you don't need to sleep at night. It's bad for you for these 10 reasons. And I was like, you're clearly crazy. So I think I'm good. I'm going to keep sleeping. Um, so the, there's people that hate everything out there. People that love everything, you know? So life is like a giant buffet. You take what works for you, you know? But you don't need to go and say, that's awful. You know, go through a buffet. You're like, mm, I like a sweet potato. You take a sweet potato. You don't need, then somebody comes, they take mashed potatoes. You need to be like, ew, you took mashed potatoes. That's the worst, man. Like, you don't need that. You take your sweet potato. It works for you. You eat it. You enjoy it. It's happy in your body. It feels good. Great. Ashtanga yoga works for you. Test it out within your body. That way someone comes, oh, Ashtanga yoga is bad for you. It does so much forward bending, too much chaturanga, too much on the wrist, too demanding, six days a week, so intense, can't eat garlic, can't eat onions, so terrible, awful, awful, awful. Then you're like, look, go do it. I'm not telling you to do it. I like it. It works for me. Let me do it. You know, what do you do? Oh, I like this. I do this other, you know, this hot yoga with the heat on. And you're like, oh, guess what? I don't like that. I don't do it. How about that? We can still be friends. We meet for coffee after. You go do your hot yoga. You go put yourself in front of the heater and you go like this and that. Then I go into the other room. I squeeze Mula Banda. I go like this and that. Then we go for coffee after. No problem. So definitely there's a lot of haters out there of everything. You know, I think generally we should try to not hate things. So, you know, if we're a big critic of something, why? What? You're on submission? So go and eliminate something. Why? It's benefiting all these people. Let them do it. Just don't do it yourself. That's all. You know? It's like that. <laughs> good. Okay. I think it's about the time, yes? Good. Very good. So thank you, everyone, so much for this time. Thank you for staying on at home. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. 
O-M-S-T-A-R-S dot com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.